The following presentation was featured at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Tanya, the poem, a presentation by Rabbi Meni Chazanon and Mrs. Tanya Chazanon. I'm Tanya Khazanov. I'm Manny Khazanov. We're married. Yeah. <laughs> as you might have guessed. Uh, I want to throw out a question before we get started uh, for you to just keep in mind as we're, as we're sharing, because the Tanya is really a book that sort of demands, I would say, or asks you to be a participant in the text. It's not an abstract idea that we just like hold from afar, but really something that invites us to consider how the ideas are present in our lives and in our journey. So the question that I want to just put out there that we'll revisit at the end is, do you experience or where, where in your life do you experience tension as a Jew? And could that tension possibly be a good thing? And I'll start and open with a welcome poem. Yes. That tension. Okay. All right. Welcome, friends. Welcome, travelers, strivers, reachers, radicals, regulars, followers, and leaders. If you struggle, welcome. If you seek, take a seat. Get comfortable. We'll be here a little while. In the pages of this book, unravel your body's skin. Disentangle the letters. We're letting God in. In the unfolded worlds, seek sense in the senseless. In the streets of your soul, prepare to meet God. Come in. Come closer. In the unvisited pages, the eternal is waiting. Carry me, carry me mm -hmm. 
I saw you standing in the soft spring rain Like a soul in a field of earthly glow And such winds of providence that bring me to this place And the same will carry me when I go Singing my soul, please, won't you carry me, carry me Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. So, the Tanya is a book, a small little book, that was written over 200 years ago, but still somehow feels like it was written directly to me. It's a seminal work of theological, spiritual, metaphysical thought that really underpins most of Hasidic thought and Chabad Hasidic thought in particular. Its author was Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, known as the Alter Rebbe, who was the founder of Chabad. He lived in Russia in the latter half of the 18th century. He was a spiritual guide and mentor for tens of thousands of Jews who would all flock to him with all types of questions pertaining to matters of the spirit, the relationship with God, the relationship with other Jews, with the world, and with themselves. The Alter Rebbe would give them answers, and those answers really spoke to their souls. The Tanya is really the Alter Rebbe's endeavor to take all of that wisdom, originally imparted through a soul-to-soul audience, a personal one, known as Yechidut, Yechidus, which means a soul-to-soul audience, to take it and to render it as ink on a page so that Jews from far-flung places and subsequent generations, such as you and I, could benefit from the wisdom they're in. Chassidim say that opening the Tanya basically entails an audience with the Alter Rebbe. And maybe that's why I feel, and I think many, many people do, that it is an audience with the Rebbe. It's, it's, a, it's directly intended and speaks to, to me and you. Over the years, Tanya has completely reshaped and shifted my own understanding of myself and the way I speak to myself. And it really has given me a language to analyze my inner world, all the various forces at work, some spiritual, some not so much. And we hope today to present to you some of those ideas through the medium of music, poetry, and prose. Thank you for coming to the JLI retreat. We're so excited to be here. So um, this will be amazing. God's help. So the Tanya describes the state of the soul before it came down to this world. It was in a lofty spiritual state. Its connection to Hashem, to God, was extreme. In that state, the Tanya says that the soul is made to take an oath. Be a tzaddik and do not be a rasha. Be righteous and do not be wicked. Introduce a little bit of light into this world and not darkness. And try to leave it a little better than it was when, when we found it. It could be said that the Tanya is really about reminding us of that promise we made so long ago. 
and giving us the tools to fulfill it. Allow us to take you on the journey of the soul from the Tanya's perspective. This poem is called A Promise and a Prayer. I live in a borrowed body. Somebody else's clothes. All of this skin. All of this gut. All of this worry. This mind. This money. This mess. This miracle. I treat my existence like a loan. One day, I will give myself back. Though my body was heavy, and I could not always balance an eye of the storm. The winds may have ravaged this milky skin. My wrappings returned, bruised, broken. May I return my mind sharper. This money cleaner. This mess folded. This miracle exalted. Thank you. May all of my breath live back this gift. I will spend my life tiptoeing back to you. A lifetime of soul is not enough to return what you give. Yes, I'm a slave, searching for some freedom, searching for some freedom, so I intend to sing them songs to spark memories. What is a man with no history? Who am I? So where am I? What is this place? We're just spinning in space. I will be like, oh, yo, 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 yo. I will be like, I will be like. Oh, yo, 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 I will be like, time will continue without you. In the end, it's not about you. Oh, what did you do? Who do you love besides you, beside you? Many died in the name of vanity. Many die in their minds eye for justice We die for you and still do So I say to you, this is nothing new I will be light, oh yo 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 I will be light, oh 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 I will be light, oh yo 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 I will be light, oh oh Shine to shine. 
burn away the darkness you got one tiny moment in time the light to shine to burn away the darkness you got one tiny moment in time the light to shine to shine to burn away the darkness you got one tiny moment in time for light to shine to shine to shine to shine said I will be light oh yo 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 I will be light oh, oh, oh. <laughs> okay so Oh, no. It's inspired by. Yes. But it's not my own songs. No, I am. Oh, okay. No. Okay. So, the chorus of the song was, I will be light. That's the promise that the soul made before coming down into this body. And I want to be light. And sometimes I feel like light. But I would say most days, I just feel pretty human. And according to the Tanya, there is something about our spiritual psyche is that allows us to hold this contradiction inside of us. That on the one hand, we have this godly-driven idealism, and on the other hand, we are just human beings that feel pulled towards all of the fleeting values of the physical world. So the question becomes, am I light or am I something else? Am I that original promise of my soul? Or, to borrow a phrase from one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, am I just a slave? Am I just a slave to this soft animal? Her term is soft animal of my body. Am I just a slave to the soft animal of my body? According to Yeshaya, in the book of Yeshaya, which is also known as Isaiah, which you may know it as, the God himself is quoted as saying, Vineshamos ania sisi, souls which I have made. And the word neshamos there is plural, teaching us that we each have two souls inside of us. So I have two souls inside of me, an animal soul and a godly soul. And the godly soul is that part of me that made the original promise, that looks at the world and senses its essence and believes that there is something beyond the surface that is really worth living for. And that godly soul lives in my mind and in my ability to make conscious choices, essentially. The animal soul is the part of me that wants to eat, sleep, make money, have a good time. It's the soft animal of my body. And it essentially has four core desires. The thirst for passion, pleasure, vanity, and self. And when each of these things are isolated... They can be very self-serving. But when they are in a healthy rhythm with the godly soul, they can be a really powerful force for change in the world. So the thing is that the godly soul can only communicate to the world through the body. I like to think of it like a car, that the engine is the godly soul and the exterior is the animal soul, and they can't get anywhere without each other. But you can also have a beautiful, shiny exterior sitting in your garage with an engine that just doesn't have a voice. 
So I have a godly soul inside of me, part of myself that has perfect clarity about God's reality, my purpose, my potential, but it's muffled by all this stuff, all the noise, all the other cars on the road, my insecurities, my ego, my vanity, all of my materialistic drives. I have an animal soul and a godly soul inside of me. And the truth is that I don't always know how to draw them into a graceful alignment. This next poem that I'm going to do for you is called Two Souls. One out of the dust, born of the crust of fire, the thirst for pleasure, a worm's slow crawl across the earth, reaching greedily for air, leaping at nothingness, gnawing at skin, a million miles from the heart. The other, a whispered flight, touching the untouchable, knowing the unknowable, reaching to, but landing straight in the heart of it, trampling peels to sink its teeth into the fruit, pining always to be one with its source. So this tension, really, that my wife described between the divine and animal souls is not just a characteristic of the human condition. It's not just an internal tension. It's really a universal condition, and it exists in the world at large. The Lubavitcher Rebbe used to speak of how the world is God's garden. In a garden, every flower, every inch has the touch of the gardener. The presence of the gardener is palpable. And this world, the Rebbe said, may seem like a jungle. The chaos, the fragmentation, the brokenness, the ego-driven ideas, actions, movements seem to govern this world, and they really all belie the true godly reality that Torah promises is underneath it all. So why can't we see it? What's obscuring God's presence in this world? Kabbalah speaks of a concept known by the appellation klipa. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that word before, klipa, klipa, yeah. Yeah, it's like a shell, literally translates as a shell. Yeah, yeah. So klipa is simply translated anything that obscures the true sanctity and purpose of what something is. So we'll just a simple example, take a kitchen knife. Um, the sharp side of the blade is the purpose of the knife. That's its function, that's what we use it for. The flat upper side of the blade is peripheral. It's there simply because in order to have a sharp side, you need to have that flat side on top. If someone were to mistake the flat side for the purpose of the knife, someone would basically be doing away with the whole function and purpose of that knife. So too with this world, everything in this world is saturated with God's presence. Every entity and everything has a part in the divine plan, in the divine mystery, and has a spark within it that is its connection, its true and absolute connection to God above. However, it's obscured by so many super-added peripheral elements and layers that simply obscure 
the true essence of the world around us. We don't see it because of klipa that, that shrouds all of those sparks, which await redemption by a divine soul interacting with it. Chassidim tell a tale of a tribal leader in Russia over a century ago. His name was Shamil. Anybody ever heard of Shamil? Pronounce his name five times fast. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Shamil was a, a leader of a tribe in Russia. And um, he warred with local authorities over territorial claims for many years. As the conflict went on, the authorities decided that instead of attacking Shamil head-on, they would propose a false truce, a peace agreement, where Shamil would come, he would sign an agreement, they would nab him and put him in prison, which is exactly what occurred. In prison, Chassidim say, Shamil composed a melody. This melody had, four, had three stanzas. The first recalled his former state of glory, authority, freedom, his ability to roam free. The middle stanza expressed his current state of exile in prison. And the third, his yearning to be restored to his former pedestal. Chassidim tell this tale to each other, usually deep in the night and over a lot of l'chaim, um, because Shamil's story is really a metaphor for the, the chronicles of the soul and its journey in a, in, a, in a body. We too sometimes make a truce with an environment or world or values or a philosophy or anything that's alien really to the soul's original spirituality. And this melody is the melody of the soul recalling its state that it was in in heaven, its intimate connection that it enjoyed with God. The middle stanza is the jarring feeling that we can feel when thrust into an environment that's not necessarily spiritual and Torah true. And the third stanza, it's longing to regain its original connection. I'm going to sing for you that melody now. I don't know if anybody knows it. Um, without a guitar as it's traditionally sung.
Okay, so Yehuda Avner was an assistant to the Israeli prime ministers for many years and he used to accompany them to the United States on their meetings with the presidents. And on many of those occasions, he would make a stop in Brooklyn, New York to visit with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he recounts some of those experiences in his book, The Prime Ministers. Um, one of these encounters that really touches me is a moment when he was sitting with the Rebbe in a private audience and seemingly out of nowhere, the Rebbe begins to tell him what his profession is and explain to him what a Rebbe is. So the Rebbe turned to Yehuda Avner and he pointed to a candle on his desk and he said, what is this? So he said, it's a candle. And the Rebbe responded, not quite. It's a lump of wax with a wick running through it. When does it become a candle? When the wick is lit and the candle fulfills the purpose for which it was created. And at this point, Yehuda Avner recounts that the Rebbe's voice took on a, a, different, a different rhythm, certain Talmudic cadence, you know, like that rhythm that someone, study, that someone um, uses when they're studying a page of Talmud that's often accompanied by this. So the Rebbe said, a Jewish person is like a candle. The wax is the body, and the wick is the soul. And when does a person fulfill the purpose for which they are created? When the soul is lit with the flame of Torah and mitzvahs. And with that, the rabbi escorted Yehuda Avner to the door. And as he's leaving, his hand on the door already. He turns to the Rebbe and asks him, my candle, has the Rebbe lit it? The Rebbe looked him in the eye and said, I have given you the match. Only you can light your candle. This song was written by my brother, actually, and it's called Taste of Heaven, and it's, um, it's about seeing, seeing the presence of Hashem in the world around us, commonplace activities, places, and people.
in Show you what they're talking about When they're talking about So, we, um, we have the, no, I got it. we have the wax and the wick. We have the body and the soul, the divine soul and the animal soul. And this unceasing tension that really could result in a crisis of identity. It's, it's really like we have so many forces within us, which one of those forces is the true me, the true identity that I, that I have within. It's kind of like we have this urge, this instinct to get rid of that tension, to make it go away, to do anything to attain some sort of inner peace, some extreme sense of clarity. It's kind of like the urge against cognitive dissonance. Holding internal contradictions is very difficult for, for us. So what do we do? So we have a few options. We could try to get rid of the tension. We could choose one path and follow it completely. I could choose the path of the divine soul, find a mountaintop, become an ascetic, meditate on it, and forget about my bodily existence entirely. I could choose the path of the animal soul and forget that there's a voice inside me that whispers of something infinite. We could also dabble with both independently of one another. I could be a Jew in synagogue and not so much outside those four walls. The Tanya says that these approaches are not the correct ones and instead suggests something counterintuitive and a bit radical. Instead of trying to do away with this tension that we experience, this inner dissonance, try to channel it. A candle becomes a candle when it's lit with a flame that retains the tension between wick, whack wick and wax, but nevertheless manages to produce light. The divine soul did not come down here to become perfected, but to perfect. The divine soul is unfiltered and unadulterated holiness. It has an intimate connection with God that is never lost. It doesn't need fixing. And that is our essence. As a Jew, that is our essential identity. The animal soul, which may seem like it does need fixing, is not a specific character trait or addiction that we could deal with. Rather, it's our very self-concept, the ego, which we're going to carry with us for the rest of our lives. So instead of trying to make it go away, instead of seeing it as a negative thing and trying to quash it, instead, channel it. Let it be a medium for the divine soul. Let it communicate the divine soul's dreams and ideas to the outside world. Believe that you have powerful holiness within you and try to let it emerge in the outside world, in your actions and in your choices. Tension will always exist within us. But in the choices we make and in the actions we take, in the kindness we give to the world and in the light we introduce into the world, there is no tension. An act of kindness is wholesome and pure spirituality. It's, it's a moment of godliness on this earth. There's no tension in the choice 
to express my divine soul. So the Tanya says the route to discovery of the divine soul does not always lead inwards, but sometimes it leads outwards. The tension within is not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe it's fuel. And if we make those choices and we introduce light into the world, then we encounter our divine soul from without, even if we don't feel it so much from within. It's kind of like the Ark, the Aron in the Mishkan. So the Aron was made up of three boxes. A golden box on the outside, a wooden box within, and then another golden box. And Chassidus says that the Aron is meant to signify our own Jewish psyche. Deep within, there's gold, the divine soul. What we experience is wood. Tension, friction, dissonance, not always the, soul, the voice of the divine soul, but as long as we make sure that our actions from without, the way we express ourselves, the way we relate to the world and to each other is the voice of the divine soul, then we encounter the divine soul in some respect. The last question that remains is, if I don't feel the divine soul, if it's not active within me to the extent that I would like, then how does it emerge into the outside world? How does it relate to the world outside me? This poem I'm going to share is called A Mitzvah. So, when my doula asked me about my expectations of birth, I was ready. I want to be tapped in to the spiritual energy, I told her, with the adorable sincerity of a first-time mother. <laughs> Go easy on yourself, Tanya, she told me. Holiness does not depend on your awareness. How elevated do you feel Midday on Yom Kippur. Sometimes you're just hungry. The sages say, one mitzvah done in this world is more powerful than the entire world to come. There, you will sunbathe in a sliver of divinity. Here, you will shiver in the presence of the sun. During labor, I felt myself drowning beneath the weight of the miracle. I did not ride the wave. I cried, though I was a vessel for creation. My bones trembled, subservient to the light. In the moment of a mitzvah, you experience God's essence become a channel for infinity in a finite world. If you cannot see him, does it really matter? Holiness does not depend on your awareness. How elevated do you feel midday on Yom Kippur? Sometimes you're just hungry or tired you do not have to do anything but be carried by the light. So a mitzvah is really the soul's language in a physical world. 
it's a meeting point between the godliness, the holiness that's inherent and hidden within us and the godliness and holiness inherent and hidden within the world. It's this timeless encounter enclosed in a seemingly physical and mundane act. So, what promise did my soul make before coming down into this body? What prayer did it say before it was flung from its, you know, pristine spot in heaven into a complicated reality in this physical body? The soul did not promise not to struggle, and it did not promise to achieve any sort of internal perfection. It only promised to make those choices that expressed the godliness that was already inherent within. Personally, I turn to my soul, as many was singing in the beginning, and I ask her to carry me, to make her voice heard, even when the rest of me is very noisy, and to take the wheel when, even though there are so many moving parts that are in my life. So like Shamil in his prison cell, who still managed to sing, and like that wick in the lump of wax that uses its body as fuel to burn. The soul only wants to fulfill its original promise, to be a force of godliness, even when it experiences contradiction within. Because the Tanya does not demand perfection. Then, and there's another book, actually, for the, there's another name for the book of Tanya. There's another name for the Tanya, which is called Sefer Shalbananim, the book of the Bainani. And the Bainani can be translated as meaning the in-between person, right? Not quite a tzaddik and not quite a rasha. Not quite a tzaddik in the way that she struggles internally and not quite a rasha in the way that every one of her actions are perfectly aligned with her godly soul. So from the outside, the Bainani seems to have fully arrived. And on the inside, she is every one of us struggling with all those things we mentioned at the beginning, pleasure, passion, vanity, self. And yet, the Bainani makes a choice at every single moment to be connected to her godly soul. The Bainani never arrives, never receives a plaque or a name tag or a title that's called Bainani. What differentiates the Bainani from any other person is just her choices. As godly beings in a physical world, we each have that choice every single moment, either to be swept up in the current of our inner worlds or to recognize that purpose of our animal souls and to use it as vehicles for our godly souls. So this next, this next and last poem that I'm going to share with you is how I try, and, and I'm on a lifelong journey to do this, to make those daily choices and to take every part of myself along for the ride. All right. This one's fun. I can feel the wanting in my blood, the way I pounce on food when I am hungry. I can feel my muscles twitching when the music is too loud. 
my animal soul is simple. Sometimes it gets angry, but mostly it just wants to drop its hips and dance. I do not feel my mind pulsing in my fingertips. I do not salivate for God like I do for fresh brewed coffee. But though my blood courses through me, my mind is DJ of my body. And whenever I feel jiggly before the drum of my desire, I can orchestrate a symphony, teach my body a new chorus. There's no reason I can't holler at the moon like a coyote. There's no reason I can't dance to a roaring, godly tune. So this one some of you should know. Aaron, you probably know. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.